I am so curious about the military. Okay. <laughs> and we're going to dig into that if it's okay. Every time I speak about the military, I feel like it's some kind of a bias that it's really hard to explain. I have a friend from England who told me once that she told some of her friends that I'm in the army and they said how evil person I was. And it's like, like being in the military in Israel is compulsory. Like, all my family went to the military. My grandma was an intelligence force in Israel. She was, like, recruited in 1940... 1950. She was recruited in 1950. So she was in intelligence. My mom was recruited just after... Was drafted, sorry. Drafted just after the uh, Yom Kippur War. And then me, when I was 18, I was like, okay, cool. Like, grandma, mom, I'm going to intelligence service. But again, Israel is very unique. You have to go to the army. Yeah. Like... No, it makes sense. It's the only place where women have to go to the army. <laughs> For better or worse, it makes us unique women. The Israeli army is a very good practice to every woman to deal with men ego. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> it's like amazing. Like if you want to learn how men are idiots, that's the way of doing it. It's not only idiots, it's like everything is like about ego and about credit and about how they can get stuff done. Sarah, why did you decide then that you are going to graduate from school <laughs> and do development? Like, what were you thinking? <laughs> so I had this teacher in high school, um, Mr. Peachy. He taught um, world history and also international relations. And he had us draw the map of the world by hand um, once a week in class to show, like, you know how to draw the United States really well in North America, but like the intricacies of Asia is something that you don't know about and you need to learn. So he also told me how, or like told our class how he burned his draft card for Vietnam and protested and all this stuff. And I was like, what? That's crazy. Um, his wife was an English teacher in high school too. We were reading Emily Dickinson and everyone wrote their papers. She was this like super calm woman and she yelled at my class because we all used like Emily, blah, 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 blah. Like using her first name when describing Emily Dickinson mm -hmm. in our papers, in our reports. And she was like, none of you did that to Thoreau. None of you did that to any men that we wrote about. Why are you doing it to the women authors? And I was like, oh whoa, these are things I need to think about. What would you say is the biggest challenge for um, women's participation and intersectional women and gender participation, gender diverse participation in the open field? Like, what do you think? Find someone to help them to get the time to do that. Like, I have a very supportive partner and I still have to remind them constantly to do the dishes, right? Yeah. <laughs> constantly to do laundry and if he hears that now he probably will laugh at me but no it does happen and it's a and it's a constant reminder and even though he's very supportive and know that he would not do it um and like i have a kid in the making but i just imagine what happened when she comes out and like if i have more or less time probably i have less so what am i prioritizing we've done the open gender monologues twice now. Yes. Is that right? Why do you think it is people latch onto it so much? And because I think a lot of people see it as pretty, like a transformational experience 
or at least, and I know that it's really emotionally draining for you and it's stories, it's stories. The monologues are therapy. Mm. They're just therapy to everyone who's there to unleash and to speak about it and know that they're in a safe space that they can do that. Yeah. Because sometimes people just want to say their story, right? But they also just want to get it off their chest. And that's the ability that the open gender monologues give you, is to take it off your chest. How many times have you been asked to take something off your chest? I think maybe twice. <laughs> exactly. So the idea is that you never come to a person in a conference setting and telling them, here, we're going to set the scene for you. And it's not a panel. It's a, basically people reading other people's stories. Yeah. Because some people don't feel comfortable. That's what, and like, I'm a very outspoken person, as you can see. But a lot of people don't feel comfortable. A lot of women feel that if they mm-hmm. say these stories, they're going to be punished for it. And the open gender monologues give you a place to not be punished for it. I think I'm so excited about the opportunity for heroines to take that into their own, into their communities at home and be able to, like, do something like the open gender monologues where... I mean, here you have to provide a lot of context usually because you're like, I live in this space. These are like, this is what I experienced because of who I am. But when you're in a room with people who are kind of in a similar context, maybe you can go deeper. I don't know. Maybe that's something that we'll learn out of it. The biggest thing about Open Heroines that we've been working on now is making sure, not the biggest thing, but one of it is making sure that we're not just like white feminists working. So that, I mean, that's my biggest fear is to have just a space on Slack where we're all just, you know, congratulating each other, but really not being inclusive of different perspectives and the way that people encounter government and their society. So that's why like, for me, I'm so proud that we've been able to bring people from all over the world. Without Open Heroines this week, there would have been 10 less incredible women at OGP. Yeah. And that's that's a shame. 